Hello, I'm Antonia. And I'm Lucy. And welcome to the Death Show podcast. Eight years ago, we were just two people who met and bonded over a shared fear of death. I'm really scared of death. (gasps) (laughs) And these days, we tour a theatre show called, wait for it, The The Death Death Show. Brian Cox lied to us. He's a big Now, we've started a podcast. As a paramedic, would your advice be to wear clean underwear? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just asking well, for a friend. Well, it depends on the job. Our aim? To get more people talking about death. So climb aboard the coffin as we pay Carvin's fare and journey into the unknown. Let's get digging into the subject of death. As we discuss the D word. Everybody laugh together. Death can be so funny. Today we are delighted to be talking to Dr. Patricia Fox. Patricia is a paediatric clinical neuropsychologist and clinical psychologist at Birmingham Children's Hospital. We're talking to Patricia about our own neuroses and also the importance of taking your own advice and why a fear of anything can't really be cured, but it can be managed effectively. Patricia says that a fear of death is actually a good thing and useful to our survival. Without fear, the human race would have died out many years ago. Oh, and by the way, it's quite noisy here. So there's a few sirens and a few West Midland buses and a few footsteps, but we've been reassured they are not the footsteps of the undead. Typically with many phobias, people seek treatment for, there's an underlying deep-rooted fear, usually of something very, very basic, sort of very fundamental, such as death or pain, but typically fear of dying. So somebody might come with a fear of heights or a fear of spiders, and underlying that is actually, at the very root of it, fear about ultimately dying Mm. as a result of being in those situations with spiders or at a great height for example Mm. and it might take a little bit of work to uncover that fear but ultimately that's what's underlying it. So Freud said that all um, anxieties or fears and kind of neuroses were all about sex and death and that's kind of the basis of a lot of it would you kind of agree with that? Um, Freud's a very controversial yeah. character. He <laughs> <It certainly> is. <laughs> um, I think you'd struggle to find many psychologists practicing these days who would call themselves Freudian. Mm. He has been um, largely discredi- discredited <laughs> for a great many things. He's perhaps the most famous, but perhaps also the least um, useful in terms of everyday working psychologists and the perspectives we use but indeed anxiety about death is is very normal and if we didn't fear death then the human race probably wouldn't have survived we need to fear death in order to survive so i'm going to take from that patricia that uh, mine antonia's death anxiety is therefore a more rational anxiety that's kind of what i'm hoping to take from that rather than uh, perhaps a many layered anxiety perhaps ours is a slightly more um uh reasonable one 
perhaps you're just more self-aware than some people are. I'll definitely take that. Oh, yes, I like that. So <laughs> I think that um, human beings do need to have a healthy concern and fear of death. We wouldn't have evolved, we wouldn't have survived without it. Um, I guess the important thing is the degree to which that concern or fear envelops you or controls you or dominates your life can you still function a reasonable everyday life without this concern uh, dominating everything that you do and restricting what you do because you're scared of doing anything because you might die yeah that's that's really interesting (laughs) and that's something we've really tried to challenge within our show actually is, Mm. is thinking about those things because it has informed some of our decision making at point and and I think when you really reflect on it for us and I think for other people too it is it is quite scary and it's because it's hard to imagine as well and as a society we don't think people talk about it that much either and I think you'd said something very interesting there about decision making it informs your decision making and perhaps you have been reflecting on how it informs your decision making whereas with many people they their decisions are affected by concerns about death but they're not perhaps as aware of that they act upon that concern and fear without really thinking about it i'm finding this conversation quite reassuring (laughs) good we're self-aware this is is better than i thought um and i mean just going back to what you were saying lucy about the um the decision making and how it then in, yeah, in, informs what, what you do. I mean, I've certainly found that um, once I started to uh, unpick some of my anxieties, that actually maybe death wasn't actually the problem. Maybe it was more of an anxiety around living a good life, but knowing mm. you've got this sort of looming deadline. So um, I talk in the show um, mm. about this pressure to live a, a good life, whatever uh, that means. Instagram worthy. Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, and the, the the idea that we're all supposed to get to the end, look back and have no regrets, because if you've got regrets in life, then mm. uh, perhaps you weren't living it. Uh, you haven't as, lived your best life. Exactly. Yes. Mm. Um, so that's that's been quite interesting for for me um, mm. to to discover that that yeah. perhaps my death anxiety is more of a slight life ang- anxiety uh, <laughs> in, instead. But um, mm. I guess that knowing that, as you say, human nature, knowing that we all have a we all have a deadline. A, a deadline that's um, maybe it forces you more to, to try and be in the try and be in the present and that can be difficult for for people to experience as well that's really interesting it might be a, perhaps a more modern social phenomenon uh, that we've perhaps seen in rising with the increase in social media mm. I might hypothesize mm. yeah I think it is really interesting that idea about a best life is really interesting because I think mm. Antonio and I have definitely had conversations about how that's made us feel like slightly stunted in our decision making sometimes because you know how do you pick the best of everything you know it's how do you have the the best version of your life you could have and other people seem to be having a better life and Mm. then what how do we compete or how do we not feel that we're not living life to the full and that tension between living life to the full by skydiving mm. or other exciting things but then also the mundane the banality of having to go to work every day you know that doesn't feel like your best life does it when you clean the mold in the back of the fridge i don't feel like i'm living my best life no toilet cleaning doesn't make you feel like you're living your best life no it really no. doesn't but that's something about the massive 
observation of ourselves and each other constantly. We're bombarded with this on social media. It's relentless. Everybody's lives are apparently laid open, bare to observation. And there's a massive competitive pressure, as you say, Mm -hmm. to live the best life, even to the point where people who are not living their best lives, not happy, not enjoying things, will manufacture an image an image to put on social media of how blessed and wonderful their life is. Yeah, there's a um, phrase I was thinking of that's uh, comparison is the enemy of joy. And, and that for me really resonates actually that um, despite feeling, if I'm honest, quite addicted to social media and needing to check it, gosh, I'm so much happier when I don't. Like, because actually I've got lots, but when you look on Instagram or other people's lives it feels like everybody's doing something so much more exciting absolutely more exciting better higher bigger brighter more wonderful absolutely have you um, have you had any experience at all of looking at um, sort of levels of death anxiety in this country compared to to other countries across the world is 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 are those kind of anxieties more prevalent in the UK I have to say no it's not something that I I think is a general research area Um, mental health problems generally tend to be higher in the UK and in very capitalist cultures compared to other countries Europe and such yeah Mm, that is interesting again it's about the pressure of capitalism having more yeah it's interesting in in um in westernized countries where we have so much yet we seem to be really dissatisfied with what we do have i think that's really interesting yes the work of um oliver james has looked at this quite closely and how mental health prevalence rates rates increased um with the rise of ultra selfish capitalism in this country particularly after the um 1979 general election when Thatcher came to power he's looked at that quite extensively and in terms of um, wealth and happiness people say money doesn't buy you happiness to an extent that's true what money does is take away unhappiness so if you have enough money so that you don't have to worry about feeding yourself feeding your family having a roof over your head actually there is a good correlation between wealth and happiness but only up to about the level of portugal so basically enough money so you don't have to worry about starving or having no home beyond that level there's very little correlation between happiness and wealth Wow. So as long as your basic needs are met, that actually there's not much um, it takes happiness away that after stress. that. Yeah. It takes away the stress and the unhappiness from that sort of worry. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's really good to know. So then, I guess to, to ask you, what, what are your own views on, on death? I think there's, there are various phases that people go through in their lives quite often where suddenly you have a little bit of a wake-up call for one reason or another and you suddenly realize wow life is precious it can be short we're not here forever Mm. and we might have that little reminder of oh I need to make my life count and live well and make sure that I've 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 lived as well as I can because it doesn't go on forever Mm. and sometimes this is called a midlife crisis yep (laughs) yeah and after my last midlife crisis (laughs) Um, 
I um, had that sudden rush of realisation of, wow, life's moving on, I'm moving into a different phase of life. I actually passed out. This realisation came flooding to me in one situation in particular where I'd visited some old friends at a previous workplace and these previously young women with young children were now older women with grown-up children and I wasn't the young person I was and I had this sudden rush of, oh, wow, this is the life cycle, I'm moving through it and... Life's, life's short actually mm-hmm. life goes quick it, you can turn around and realise how much has gone suddenly yeah. and um, and that's when I started um, skydiving mm. yeah would you tell us about how you, how you got into skydiving so I was looking to challenge myself mm-hmm. um, and I knew that my personal anxiety around death particularly revolved around a fear of heights and a fear of falling mm-hmm. Um, So I knew that for me to do a skydive would be particularly challenging. So I thought I decided that was what was I wanted to do. I wanted to challenge myself in the in the most obvious extreme way I could, and that was that was staring me in the face. Um, In addition, I also felt like I should practice what I preach, and because I treat other people for their phobias. I thought I should do it to myself. I should work on myself to get to a point where I could skydive without being uncontrollably paralysed by fear. Mm. Um, So I did the things that I tell my patients to do. I practised those techniques on myself. And not only did it get to a point where I could do a single skydive, I actually got to a point where I realised there were parts of the skydive that I really enjoyed and really liked. And now I'm a a competitive skydiver. I I compete at the British National Championships. Oh, wow. I didn't know you could competitively skydive. How how does that work? Well, you you get together with a bunch of your skydiving mates. You form a team. You all jump out together and you make patterns and formations and you score points. And you obviously have to take a camera person up there with you to film it so that the judges on the ground can see it. Um, Because obviously we're too far away for them to look at us in the sky. Um, And that's how we, we compete. And how many skydives would you say you've done if to get? I've, I've done about 300 and odd skydives. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not that many. I know people who have done 30,000. And and would you would you say it's addictive now? Very. It? So it's not it's something you wouldn't you it's in your life now definitely. Absolutely yeah. massive part of my life. I met my husband skydiving. Oh. We were on opposing teams on a training camp in Seville. <laughs> Very nice. And yeah. he's going to hate me for saying this, but my team came higher than his team. Oh. <laughs> um, so it's a massive part of our lives. It's hugely addictive. The, the saying that you're never, you never feel as truly as alive as when you're close to death, I think is probably quite relevant yeah. in that situation. It's, it's, it's hugely exhilarating. You're very much living in that moment of pure life. You're falling through the sky at, at 120 miles an hour. The, it's a very good way to dump a massive amount of adrenaline in, into your system. Yeah. So it's, it's very much a sport that thrill seekers are attracted to. Um, and it's, it is exhilarate, exhilarating. It's wonderful. And you've, you're flying. 
So I guess preparing yourself mentally for that, as you say, having gone from a fear of heights and falling to then doing 300 skydives, there was there was a process that you went through, was there? Absolutely. To, to prepare yourself for yes. that. And, yes. Yes. And how, does, how did you sort of approach that? Was it was it just sort of little steps or did you... It's really hard to do little steps towards a skydive. <laughs> it's kind of, you, you kind of, you're jumping out of an aeroplane yeah. or not. Um, so um, in terms of, treating anxiety problems like phobias the 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 frontline standard highly effective treatment is cognitive cognitive behavior therapy Mm -hmm. and the nuts and bolts of that are that typically if somebody's scared of something they will avoid it and then a belief system around that develops such that I'm alive and I'm okay because I'm I'm avoiding it which reinforces the fear Mm -hmm. of course so uh, CBT tends to encourage people to face their fears mm. and often it can be in a graded manner so f- perhaps with something like a needle phobia or uh, a fear of spiders you would have a very very graded exposure to say small spiders at first or even pictures of spiders before you get to the tra- 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 tarantula yep. excuse me um, and similarly with uh, needle phobia we might start with photographs because if you're exposed to something that makes you feel anxious, if you stay with that stimulus for long enough without coming to harm, your anxiety will naturally subside. Mm. And you just allow your body to go through that process. So with skydiving, it's hard to do that because you're, you're only in the air for a minute at a time. You, you fall for a minute and then you have to open your parachute if you want to go skydiving again, mm. that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I did a lot of... Um, thinking about skydiving I made myself think about it because very often if somebody thinks of something scary they'll try and turn their thoughts away from it they'll try to repress that thought but you make yourself stay with it you make yourself feel the anxiety to desensitize yourself I also did a lot of cognitive restructuring so looking at how rational is this fear of dying of Mm. how rational is it to be scared Um, I, I know the equipment I know what it can do I know what the statistics are Yes, there is something inherently um, intuitively dangerous about falling towards the earth from an aeroplane, but we have the equipment to keep ourselves safe. And we know that when accidents happen, it tends to be because people have done something silly. Right. So yes, it can be very dangerous, but if you remember your training, do things as you should do them, actually there's no need that anyone should be hurt. And then that—it's <laughs> all just too difficult to make sense of at times. Because now I'm picturing you on that aeroplane for the first time, yes. the door open, yes. and you're you're there, knowing you've got to take a, that step out or throw yes. yourself out. I mean, I mean, could you tell us about that first time? Yes, then? So it, often, it was yeah. terrifying. Of course, it was terrifying. But sometimes the point of these therapies is not to make you not afraid is to make that fear manageable Mm. and to enable you to be able to do the things you want to do and manage that fear so it's not completely overwhelming it doesn't control you you can feel it and you can still do what you want to do so you feel the fear and do it anyway yeah Yeah. Yeah. i think it's interesting as well just thinking about antonio and i's fear of death as well that we kind of embarked on this process of, of, of researching death and we spent time at an undertaker's and with dead bodies and um, visiting a crematorium all these things um, because we wanted I guess to try and get to know it a bit better but I guess we did our own form of like 
in formal desensitization. Yeah, desensitization. So I guess there was, an, there was an immediate ick factor with a dead body, an immediate disgust. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say yeah. it's decreased my fear of death, if I'm honest, actually, because no. I still don't know what it's like to die. Do you know what I mean? Yes. I, don't, I can't, just as you can't high, half skydive, mm. I can't half die. Mm. But maybe maybe I could like be brought back to life I'm not sure but like <laughs> so I don't, I don't play with that I don't think I can half die so I still feel I don't know it depends what you're watching on telly <laughs> yeah <laughs> neighbours could you yeah. might. <laughs> maybe maybe I could be brought I could be resuscitated from something but it's quite hard to half die so mm. I still feel like my fear of death is just as strong yes but yeah having and maybe Being very close to death, it has alleviated some of the practical concerns around what happens okay. around death. And maybe it's it's normal and okay to have a fear of death. Mm. Yeah, it's about in, making that fear part of your life, not your whole life. Mm. Part of your thinking and feeling, not everything. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that. Um, it's a way of managing it, isn't it? And, and as yes. you say, it's accepting accepting that discomfort is natural, but managing that discomfort. Yes. Holding it and not judging yourself, perhaps, as well. Mm. Actually accepting that it's okay to feel like that and it's part of what you are, who you are. It's not everything. Yeah. I mean, it, it just reminds me when... Um, uh, so we, we spent a number of weeks shadowing um, some undertakers and um, I think on one of our first days um, we went to collect a body from a hospital morgue and we yes. took the body to a funeral director to be prepared for his funeral and um, uh, the, the undertakers and the, um, the mortuary assistants they, they laid out this gentleman and I think it was the first time that we'd both been that close to a dead body and we looked at each other exactly as you say with that sort of well, it was fear and that ick, that sort of, how are we... And I just look, I just remember thinking, well, we've got to do it, haven't we? Because we're here now. Mm. And what will it look like if we... <laughs> what will it look like if we don't, I guess, uh, throw ourselves into this, this yeah. experience? And you did... Yeah, I think I certainly found that the more time we spent preparing this, um, this, mm. this gentleman, it sort of... I mean, whilst it maybe didn't necessarily normalise it, it's... It's never going to be pleasant or nice experience. But perhaps you're feeling disgust and anxiety subsided a little during yes, the process and you, and you start to un- I mean that's the thing as you're saying Lucy you start to understand what's what's happening and what's happened and um, I mean for, for me I sort of understood death by seeing a dead body because I realised that um, the dead what I guess essentially the dead body that's left is very much a vessel for for the, for the life really and um, mm. and so that sort of helped that helped me to understand a little bit some of my my anxiety uh, the fact that it's sort of it, we we get it gets hidden away from us as, as typically as a yes. society means that it becomes something that we shouldn't just we shouldn't really know about because it's 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 difficult and it's very English isn't it yes. not to talk about mm. it I'm interested as well, particularly that I see quite a lot of that around children. So this yeah. idea um, in popular culture, so on certain TV programs, a child will ask about someone dying, and and they're really shushed in those questions. Mm. Um, and I know parents who've articulated it being really difficult to speak about the death of a family member mm. or the prospect of the fact everyone dies, and. I wondered if you had any thoughts around that have, with your work with children. 
I think it's more difficult for the adults than it is for the child. I think children appreciate the truth and actually can handle a lot more honesty than people give children credit for. I think it's very natural for parents and adults to want to protect children from what they perceive to be the unpleasantness of life. But that's why children have such horrible, gruesome fairy tales. <laughs> Death is, is present, cruelty is present. Look at our old Dahl books. There's always yep. some hideous cruelty in there. Look at Disney films. Every child is an orphan or has lost a parent. It's, it, it's the introduction for children to this part of life and it's in a way that's less harsh but then how that translates into real life so it might be acceptable in fairy tales and in Disney films mm-hmm. but but then I mean I, I certainly remember um, relatives dying when I was a child and, and being told I, I shouldn't go to the funeral Me too. Um, so it's it's that yes. sort of it's, and it's a mistake mm-hmm. it's a mistake because children need to be able to go through those grieving processes just as much as adults do mm-hmm. it's unfair to de- deny them a process that will help to resolve those feelings and yes it's hard and it's unpleasant and it's part of life yeah and actually I guess as a as a child if you're at a, at a younger age if you're as you say working through those concepts and understanding mm. that life cycle it's I mean surely it will only mean you grow up with a maybe a, a more sort of enriched view of the world really from having having gone through that as a young age as opposed to being shielded or, or protected from from something and, and made to think that oh well, that's that's something that's scary and I yes. shouldn't know about it yes. yes and I mean there are two things about that really I mean one is that um, it's the way we want things to happen. We, wa- we don't want adults to lose children. Mm. We want children to lose older adults in their lives. That's yeah. the natural way of things. We should be losing our grandparents and our parents. Mm. They shouldn't be losing us as children. Mm. And the second thing is that in terms of ch- children processing death, I think the important thing is for the adults to... St- even though it's difficult when they're also in pain to try and stay with the feelings with the child to help them work through those feelings Mm. and process them rather than to push them away yeah do you have any other tips about how to broach those conversations with children um i think it's something parents really worry about and i would agree i think a lot of it is the worry of the parents it's the challenge for them rather than the, the child so any any tips you'd give to approaching that i think it starts before the bereavement it starts as children are learning about the world so seeing a dead wasp that's part of learning about life and death Um, having a pet that dies Mm. and going through that process that's learning about loss and grief Mm. talking about those stories and um, fairy tales that include loss and grief that's all preparing children for knowledge and processing their feelings about bereavement when it happens to them Mm. the work begins before it happens yeah that makes sense and that's something Antonio and I talk a lot about actually just in relation to adults preparing as well that we should have those conversations about death and dying when we're when we're fit and healthy actually because that's the easiest time Definitely. to talk about them yeah. which uh, which I guess brings us on to, a, uh, to, to asking um, have you thought about uh, what you might want for your funeral or, or uh, end of life choices at all have you, have you had conversations with people about yeah, what you might like um, I've 
planned my um, will with my husband um, and my anxiety about death is about leaving my son mm. without his parents at a young age before a time when he's able to look after himself so that's my big anxiety about death not me not being in the world for myself but for him mm. and that's a fear that most parents would have so we've made preparations in our will for mm. where we want him to go and with whom and how we want that to, to progress should we not be around mm. um, in terms of my funeral um, I will now and again say to my husband this would be a good song for my funeral and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and that sort of thing so now again I'll just drop drop that into the conversation <laughs> as, a, as a little aside um, and I have asked my parents about their funeral mm. and they became really upset that I was asking what they wanted um, and obviously they, their anxieties are much higher than, mm. than mine are um, again, they're perhaps more traditional in in finding it very difficult to to face this reality of life. Yeah, yeah. I wonder as well. Have you thought about what you would like people to say at your funeral? Like, if you decided to have a headstone, what might be on it? Oh, wow! <laughs> I might go with Spike Milligan's. Oh, yeah. I told you I was ill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I think um, I would like to. Uh, be remembered as somebody who made the most of it and um, earned it, earned the privileged life that I've been able to lead. That's really nice. So, um, as you probably gathered, the the aim of this podcast is to encourage more people to talk about death and dying. Mm. And um, we've talked a little bit about how um, a parent might approach a conversation with a child. Do you have any other advice for how someone might start a conversation about death and dying, um, maybe with a with a loved one? Again, I mean, there are there are aspects in our everyday life that touch on death and dying. There are lots of um, parts of television and film and books that touch on death and dying and perhaps one way to have conversation is to start with something that's come up in everyday life Mm. rather than trying to shoehorn in suddenly oh by the way I'm going to die one day and uh, what do you think of that Mm. you know it's it's perhaps start with what comes up in daily life rather than leaving it in the book or leaving it on the television or leaving it on the radio um, use, that, use that as a starting point and much in the way that uh, you're approaching the subject in that you know conversations don't have to be really heavy and depressing they can be fairly matter of fact and everyday or yeah. light hearted um, and it, it doesn't have to be a, a depressing and upsetting thing it, because it is part of our, our, our lives it mm-hmm. is a normal part and actually how awful it would be to live forever it would be terrible yeah. who wants to live forever it would be it'd be an absolute um a, a millstone around your neck it'd be terrible to see everyone that you love gone every time that you formed a relationship with somebody it would you know it would be, think of the, the queen song who wants to live forever yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah very true <laughs> Uh, well thank you so much Patricia for talking to us today it's been a really fascinating conversation and not only about psychology but also about your incredible life uh, as a skydiver and thank you so much for talking to us thanks very much it's been great thank you thank you
Isn't it reassuring to know that some of our neuroses aren't quite as weird as we thought they were? I really enjoyed that free bit of therapeutic advice we had from Patricia there. Very useful. (laughs) Yes, thank you very much to Patricia. A really interesting conversation about the mind and how fear develops and and actually how more usefully how it can be managed. And it's it's great to hear a psychologist practising what she preaches, as she put it. Uh, lots of useful tips as well there in terms of how to have conversations about death with children and you can apply that as well I guess to having conversations about death with anyone to an extent. Doing our research for the show a lot of people found talking to children and young people about death was particularly difficult and so it's always really useful to hear different ways in which you can approach that conversation and actually young people and children have a greater awareness of these things than we sometimes give them credit for. It was interesting to hear that a lot of that is the um, parents or adults' concern about death as opposed to the child's. The thing I'm going to take away from it the most is feeling the fear and doing it anyway. That's top advice. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's episode and feel inspired to start a conversation with someone you know about death. Whether it's something practical, personal or philosophical, let's keep the conversation going and change the way we view death because the more we talk about it, the less fearful it becomes. Because after all, we're all going to die, so let's talk more about it. Everybody laugh together, death can be so funny. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, then come and see our show. We're packing up the coffins and coming to London to perform the Death Show at Camden People's Theatre from Thursday the 30th of January to Saturday the 1st of February 2020. Tickets can be booked via their website, cptheatre.co.uk. See you there. We're recording this in the past, so if you're listening to this in the future, which I think you must be, then check out our website for more details about what we've got coming up. Go to thedeathshow.co.uk. And if you're listening to this way in the future, then who knows, we might already be dead anyway. And this is our disembodied voices from beyond the grave. Wow. <laughs>